Hello and welcome back to The Chatty Calligrapher. I'm Miranda and in this special long episode I sit down for a chat with my mentor and tutor, Lockheen, of The Graphic Quill. We discuss her calligraphy journey, how an average day looks for her as a full-time calligrapher and what keeps her inspired 30 years on. Let's dip in. I've obviously heard a bit of this story before, but um, how did you start calligraphy? We were talking earlier about how it wasn't really called calligraphy here in the beginning, but how, how did you, how did you like first, first finding a pen and picking it up kind of right from then? Working as a small, in a small business, printing business with just three women, I was the printer and graphic artist and a lady brought in a handwritten invitation and I fell in love with it, wanted to know what it was and how it was done and had to find somewhere to learn it here in Melbourne, which was eventually came across the College of Decoration. So did you know who did that first invite you saw? Did you ever get to meet the person oh, yes. behind that? Yep, yep. She was a good friend of the woman who ran the business. Oh, wow. That's, that must yeah. be kind of special. But... Yeah, and she was prominent in creating blackboard menus in pubs in those days. Back before lettering on everything was a thing. So how did you transition from it being something you were like, oh, I want to learn how to do that into that's now your full-time income? <laughs> that's a huge leap. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I knew straight away that I could use it to make money, basically. I loved what it was, fell in love with the writing, and I just uh, felt, well, I can use this to create an income and started the three years at uh, night school at the College of Decoration. So that was why you're still doing printer work during the day? Yeah, yeah, printing during the day, three years of study doing that, late nights and weekends. And then I was teaching over that time. I began teaching, like everyone does today, began teaching really early because I could. I got good at it quite um, early on. And I began teaching at the College of Decoration as well. After yeah. a few years there, I began teaching layout and design for the students. Jan Ferguson began the calligraphy course, which became the certificate course, which then moved on to RMIT, which was That's... weird. I yeah. began teaching there to start with. But also Carlin Harper, who was a friend of mine, she taught uh, that course as well, and Jan encouraged her with that. I took a different path and started my own printing business and then sold that and went to college and did graphic art and design, specialising in hand lettering and calligraphy. Was that at RMIT as well? or That was at Box Hill TAFE. So I was 27, a mature age student. And... So I'm, I'm the right age then. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. So yeah, specialised in hand lettering in that course and got top folio in the course when I finished, headhunted out of that into a job in a design studio where they wanted a calligrapher and lettering artist wow. as a finished artist designer to create lettering for, Was he was a publisher as well, so he's publishing food books, recipe books. Wow, what so, I wouldn't give for a job like that. Yes, <laughs> straight into that, so it, yeah. was, it was great, it was perfect, so a few years at that. <laughs> the funny thing was I was working in this design studio and loving what I was doing and then I took a trip up the Birdsville track on a motorcycle all the way up to Darwin and when I got back I was fed up with working in the rat race so dropped my job and started the graphic quill. 
Just like that. Mm. <laughs> Just like that. Created a business out of it. Knowing that I'd been a printer, was a finished artist, knew, knew the graphics, knew how it was all done, and decided I wanted to use calligraphy to create invitations and corporate do corporate work. So you were, you, you had a period there where you were teaching, but then when you went to Box Hill TAFE for the design course, that teaching effectively was put on hold for a while. No, actually, or... I, I did keep teaching because teaching was paying my way through college, even though there was our study in those days. Yeah. I had to pay the rent, had to... Um... So did you continue teaching even after you got headhunted? Was it something that was constant? I did a little bit. I pretty much gave it up at that point. And um, and then did you pick it straight back up again when you went to make the graphic film? Yeah, when I started my business again, I figured I would do a little bit of teaching again. But I think I must have been working at the CAE all through then because I taught for them for 10 years and was doing all my other workshops all over the place. So, But once I started the graphic quill, I was doing it a little bit and then I had too much work to continue teaching. So the calligraphy classes had to go. And now they're back. And now they're back. <laughs> Which yeah. is just as well, what with the RMIT, that, that, that the course that was from the College of Decoration and then wending its way down into not a lot anymore, unfortunately, yeah. thanks RMIT. Who knows who it was thanks to, but it's not happening anymore, which is a huge shame. Well, yeah, to have, have a course that was three years be whittled down to a six-month, one-semester yeah, a, bit, a big shame in this day and age when that sort of course really should be, time should be put into it to promote it and grow it. Mm. Um, but they're not, so I might. So you obviously support yourself with teaching and with um, commission work now. When, when, how long did you spend doing just commission work and, and when did the teaching come back into being? Part of your income stream? Oh, a couple of years ago when Nicole Heaslip left and there was a position available at RMIT, so I, I took it up. Oh, okay, it up so there. it was actually pretty recent. You spent most of your time as the graphic quill just doing commissions. Mm. Oh. Mm. And have the, the commissions stayed constant that whole time, or is it? Well, it, it wasn't commissions to begin with. Um, I began the graphic quill to create what I called celebration stationery and it was creating designs for invitations so a lot of my work was corporate work so I was designing people like BHP and the Wheatboard etc were using calligraphy for invitations so it was just handwritten sometimes mm. calligraphic design their Christmas cards, greeting cards that we designed for them. Um, and But I designed, the graphic quill was when I designed a range of stationery. It began with just custom-made invitations. I thought, went into it blindly and realised that you can't do that, you need to have a basis for it. So then I stepped back and created several ranges of designs that were able to be produced on demand, I could produce prices for them. So I had, they were still custom made, but you could choose, choose your design, choose a format, a style, graphics, papers. And when did that sort of fade into the sort of stuff that happens now? Because you don't really do have any of the, the preset things 
that people use very much anymore. No. And well, you do still have corporate clients. Yes. Well, the, the invitations were, that was groundbreaking work that I did then. No one else was really doing anything like that at all. There were a few printers that were producing invitations, but nothing like what I was doing and nothing as structured as I came up with in the end with the designs that I had, with the ranges that I had. And that went until I was designing until and producing those until 2005. Okay, so it was like a good 14, 15 years mm. into the business. Mm. And then what sort of made the change? Technology. <laughs> <laughs> the convenience of computers. Ah, uh, yeah, well. by the internet. <laughs> first of all, it wasn't so much technology as we think of it today. It was having a home computer and then papers and printers being available to mm. print their own invitations. So that killed what I was doing and people were comparing hand-done prices too? Well, my designs were, there was a lot of calligraphy involved in it. That was the basis of it. That was the main tool that I used to, to set me apart from everybody else. But a lot of it was type. There was a combination of calligraphy and type and hand, all the, a lot of the illustrations that we used were created by our team as well, hand-drawn. So calligraphy was a part of it. And then... The designs were superior and the print was, was superior at that time. And the formats that we used, the you know, the raised print and the embossing that we were doing and the cutouts and it uh, was all pretty major new stuff in those days. Mm. And, and the, now the, these days all of those invite places for weddings just full or windows full of like laser cut this, that and everything else, intricate lace paper designs. Oh, yeah, when it's the papers just... became available that was like comparing onions and bananas or something was just <laughs> ridiculous. You so just... how did you go about pivoting? Like how much time do you feel like you had when you realised, oh, this this is a sinking ship and I need to do something different? Well, I decided that I didn't want to be a retail store. That was easy. It was quite a good decision. I began to feel sick about doing invitations because after dealing with brides for so long... It was um, it was a tough a tough gig to do when you've every single job that you do you've got to explain all the detail about how it's done and how it's produced in order to make them understand what you're producing for them so and then every detail in an invitation has to be correct there's no room for any errors whatsoever at any point so the whole production has to be immaculate from beginning to end and having my graphic design background. There was no other way of doing it. There was no shabbiness along the way anywhere. It was pretty damn hot stuff. It had to be. Yeah. To last so long. Mm. So when the papers became available, I figured not going to be a retail store. It's not what I came in here to do. So I just dropped it, shut the shop and walked away. But you kept the business name. So oh, I kept working. I was still doing commissions and calligraphy work. The what I call the bash out work or the bread and butter work where you're filling in names on invitations and envelopes or designing certificates or um, doing commissions. And I had, a, I had a good client who was giving me daily work, provided with me with around 40000 a year. Okay. And, as, and that was effectively on the side of doing the printing and invitation so you could afford to walk away. Mm. That's, that's a unique position to be in. <laughs> yes. So then I walked away, set up, um, closed the shop and moved into a really fabulous little groovy place in Glen Ira Avenue 
by that time I'd bought my Harley Davidson, so I was due for a bit of time out. So I did. So I was did working. you go back to Darwin and have another epiphany? <laughs> no, a friend died, so I figured, you know, life's tough. I'm going to enjoy the time I have and went out and rode my Harley. It was kind of like being semi-retired for a few years. And was this when you went to the States? I went to the States well before that. Oh, that's right. No, this was... And, like, and studied oh, with uh, Sheila yeah. Waters over there for a month oh, or so yeah. and rode around the country on a motorcycle from Canada to so Mexico. This is in the <laughs> 80s. No one does that in the 80s. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't ask, did anybody do it? I just did it. <laughs> I think that that's probably the best way to approach most things in life, to be fair. That's the thing, the, the, um, the beauty of ignorance, the blissful beauty of ignorance when you don't know that it can't be done, done. you just go ahead and do it. And I think part of the reason why I've done what I have done is because I came from New Zealand and I was brought up in a family where my mother did all sorts of things that you that women didn't do, breaking in horses and creating all this stuff, bringing up five kids. And and New Zealand's a place where people just do stuff. Women do things. Yes, yeah, there's just it, not enough people there for them not well, they to don't do know. stuff. Well, they don't, they're so far away that in New Zealand you don't know what you're not supposed to do because you're not connected to you know, the rest of the world and it, you blindly go ahead and do things. Look, look at how innovative the whole country is. Well, that's yeah. how I grew up. So Yeah, that's it. You just went ahead and did things. And... I was here in Australia on my own as a single woman, so you don't take a leap. You just <laughs> you just go and do things, and it it must be my makeup. Just it does seem to work for you. Just it's like I'm doing this now, and it, and it all does sort of fall into place. Although well, it sometimes takes longer than one would like. <laughs> it seems like it falls into place, but you get an idea and you work on it. Like I I discovered I love calligraphy. I went to school and studied it. I wanted to start my own printing business. I started my printing business. Then I realized I needed to go back to college and study. So I sold the printing business and did that for years. So each step took years. Yeah. Years of study, years of commitment, years of damn hard work. And then I started the graphic quill, which took years to build up. I don't know how I managed to live on the smell of an oily rag, but I have done. <laughs> And so these days you're obviously teaching and doing commissions. Which one would you say is, is contributes the most to, to your income these days, teaching or the commissions? Mm, it's probably about 50-50, more, yeah, more of the commissions, I think, probably. I love doing the commissions because it's so often you get to do something that is you're creating it, it's your ideas, your thoughts, your ability to, to do the writing in such a way. But being who I am, every time I do something, I do something new. I create a new style. I develop something a little bit different. And it takes so much time. So really, yeah. you know, it's I, just... I've seen you work yourself into a whole creating new italic variations to this one client and then mm. all over again the next time. Well, the funny thing is that the job often dictates it. Often you'll get a piece of writing that's got to fit into a certain size, into a colour, into a shape for a client's taste for a certain purpose. So it's often... inherently calling for something different every time. Well, I could repeat things over and over, but the thing is I want to continue to develop what I know. It all has to keep growing and evolving. When you look around and see how much beautiful work out there is, it's not hard to evolve yourself when you can see so much else yeah. because you've got so much reference. So you can take a style, 
and then another style and a few others and put them in front of you and create something out of what you're looking at, but create something quite new. So, but it has to fit the job. So you, there are parameters with it, but. So you do a lot of italic variations. What is it that you like about it? Because it's so versatile and it can be quite expressive. And even though it's italic, often I'm bringing into it the qualities and characteristics of the other styles anyway. Yeah, I've certainly seen some of your italic variations that definitely have a very unseal feel to them. Unseals and bookend and all sorts of things. That's what's necessary to make them all a little bit different, different weights and different spacing. And the piece, the work that you're writing requires that anyway. Each piece is expressive in its own way. And the writing on its own, just leaving it quite normal is expressive. You don't really need to do a lot. But to now, my work has been quite graphic, quite graphically laid out, like a lot of the pieces that I do. So I'm developing more into backgrounds and background techniques and layering and distortion, just making a hash of some of them, actually. (laughs) Taking calligraphy and just bashing it up. I guess that's one way to find new things. <laughs> <laughs> Playing around with letters and, and um, like, the, like the tendency is now is to make them a little bit not quite so readable. But it depends on the purpose of the work because if you're doing a commission that is a poem or a song lyrics to be given to someone, they want to read it. Yeah. And yeah. that's the purpose behind it. But it's yeah. not always needed to be read, readable, the whole piece. Yeah. What are your go-to tools both in terms of uh, nibs but also inks and paper? Oh, well, starting with the paper, I'm most often using Arsh's pot press watercolour and the tools I'm always using dip pens, Bruss, William Mitchell. And years ago I would have scoffed at and did, (laughs) as was my tendency uh, to do so with certain things, uh, I was scoffing at speedball nibs, but I found that those can be amazing for doing gestural work. Most often, I work in gouache. I hardly ever use ink, uh, but I do like brush as well, pointed brush and flat brush. Pointed brush, I'm developing some new styles with those at the moment, which are rather gorgeous. And it just goes on. The variety. <laughs> yeah. And all those new Dreaming Dog pens and yeah, beautiful yeah. rolling pens. There's so many they're all just slightly different enough that you need all of them. That's the real problem. Well, <laughs> I remember, like a lot of people I know now, that end up buying a lot of materials when you have no idea how to use them or tools when you have oh, no I idea how to use them. I am definitely, definitely guilty of this. <laughs> but they stay with you and you know you'll get to them eventually. Yeah, that's it. Like I have no idea how to use those ruling pens yet, but I am determined to <laughs> not have them go to waste. And Dreaming Dog's probably a damn good name for them because there's a lot of people dreaming about whatever they're going to do with those beautiful pens. So what keeps you inspired after 30 years of calligraphy? God. (laughs) I'm an inspired person, I think. I wake up inspired. I get inspired by looking around and looking at nature, looking at architecture. So what inspires me is teaching inspires me because I'm learning as I'm teaching. I'm learning so much more. I'm studying more and I'm... In the teaching, I'm sharing it, so I'm explaining it, and I discover things within that. Too. Yeah, they do reckon that the best form of learning is to try and 
teach it to somebody else. Mm. And having the opportunity to teach you this advanced course is the best opportunity for me to study and delve deeply into the history and the personalities that are writing today and uh, the variation of styles and really hone in to some of those to work on and, and use in my work daily. So what would you say is a typical day for you? <laughs> no such thing, I'm aware. But well, on a day maybe where you're not teaching, what is a typical day? Well, I'd normally start my day off with a, with a walk on the beach with Duke for a starter, and that's going to really add to the inspiration I have for the day. It, I never, When I first moved down to Hampton, I thought, what the hell am I doing in this sleepy little hollow after living in St Kilda? Uh, and Rip and Lee for years, but it's a blessing and it's really helping with my creativity and getting the moments to have that fresh air, that'll inspire me. So then too often I'm sitting in the compu- in front of a computer for too many hours, handling clients, emailing, creating designs, um, marketing, social bloody media, <laughs> smoke and mirrors rubbish, um, but... You have to do it. So yep. being a calligrapher is not all about sitting at your desk all day writing. It's about running a business and knowing your tools that you're using. So now that um, everything's changed in the world I, that I lived in before with social media and the, the internet and the availability of everything, the sight that you can have with everything that's going on now, it means that um, too many distractions too often. But I'll often... On a typical day from working at the drawing board, I set myself up so that I have the right state of mind for working at the drawing board and I plan things and clear out my space and set the set all the space up so I have everything perfect, clean and, and ready to work. And it, it it's a matter of getting into a frame of mind and, and um, creating a mindful workspace, which means I'll turn the radio off and listen to some decent music and not answer the phone or try not to look at social media in the <laughs> middle of it so that you can get a good run at the work that you're doing. Yeah, you there's really something to be said focus. for this, getting in a flow. Mm. And so roughly how many hours a day of, of your total working hours, how many are at the drawing board? Well, it, I can't say. It'll depend on what, what jobs I have in, and I tend to batch things into work at the computer, finish it all up, get all the, um, the head, head work done and the marketing stuff done, and then batch it over into working on the drawing board. So I might work for days, days on end at commissions or um, the bread and butter bash out work if I've got those sorts mm. of things on. Certainly for me, I know that like I str- even on a weekend where I've got literally nothing on, I struggle to do even broken into pieces struggle to do more than about four hours in a day of writing (laughs) oh yeah well um oh god i've done days when it's been 12 hours at the drawing board that's um i've done not so much now but i do overnighters you know get a big job in and you've got to work overnight to get it done and because you've got a deadline, the client comes late as usual, you've just got to get the deadline done and you keep going. But you take regular breaks and it's all about the exercise that you get between, taking breaks, going for a walk, 
really relaxing with your muscles as well so that you're not tensing up at the drawing board. Mm. So taking a break away from it will really help. And sometimes you do a big job like that and you can't work for days afterwards because you're, you're stuffed. Your whole body is stuffed and your head, your brain dead because it's, it's men- high concentration. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of mental focus. Mm. <laughs> like more than, more than you'd think. It's well, comparable it's, to like driving in, in that like laser well, focus. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. It, it is. Um, and you build that up and develop it over the years. You've, you're, you're building up your mental focus. So it becomes a state of mind. So you can sit and focus for long hours and it's not so draining as it might have been years ago because you work yourself into, you cut things off from the outside and you just focus on what you're doing and you have the type of music on that's not going to distract you anyway. So you work until you begin to make mistakes, then you stop. Yeah. I think I need and take a break. Need more focus. Put my phone further away. That's mm. <laughs> probably where I need Definitely. to start. Uh, this is the curse of, of trying to measure how many hours I'm spending at the pen is I need to have the phone nearby to pause it when I take a breather because I'm too strict <laughs> on myself. Whatever I think. you're saying, Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, but who uses a clock these days? <laughs> so... What are three or near, thereabouts, uh, what, who, who would you recommend checking out that we may not have heard of? May not have heard of. It depends who's listening, isn't it? Doesn't it? Well, I suppose it's all the real, the usual. Sheila Waters, of course, was my, my major teacher and Charles Pierce early on. But today there's Brody, Ewan Schweider and Eve Latern and spoke about earlier to you was um, Laurie Doctor who is an American who creates calligraphic artworks with a lot of thought and philosophy and a little bit of spirituality behind them so often finding meaning from poems and Carl Jung and Hermann Hesse and (laughs) Leonard Cohen you know delving into their works and the meanings of them and and developing artworks out of them. She writes beautiful blogs as well, so she's worth following up for that. The philosophy behind the, the artist is what interests me with calligraphy as well. That's why I liked uh, reading John Stevens' book. I could identify with him. So what's your philosophy? Summed up into like a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> the philosophy would be to keep inspired. Calligraphy is a passion. Once you fall in love with it, it becomes a part of you anyway. So being inspired and continuing the passion by always moving on to new things and developing where you're at, being flexible with how the perspective of calligraphy through traditions into modern contemporary works. I think looking to the past is, is a damn good thing to do because we have a lot to learn from type designers and past calligraphers and lettering artists because we can evolve their work. So I suppose my philosophy would be to keep an open mind. So whose workshop would you most like to attend? Because of the names you've listed, you've, you've met and worked with several of those. i tell you what I'd love to do, which would be the ultimate, and that would be to go to Belgium and study at the calligraphy school there. That would be the thing. Go over there and live for a couple of years study at a college like that and not have to bash out work and make a living every day so my next question is what's next 
for you, like what's coming up. Now, I happen to know that I perceive lost trades fairs on the horizon, but you have a variety of uh, courses and exciting teaching opportunities for those local to Melbourne this year. I do, and um, I guess the main part of what I'm trying to do is up the standard a little bit, give people a chance to move on from an introductory course, which might have they might have learned a little bit in a few hours to take their calligraphy a hell of a lot further than that and create artwork out of it from the start, from, from beginners to intermediate. So where can people find you online? You are under all handles on both website and Instagram and Facebook, uh, The Graphic Quill. As The Graphic Quill. Thanks for having a chat with me. Thanks, Miranda. That was good. Thanks for being my first interview. First? Oh, my God. Now, wouldn't it be great if I could get Eves as my next one when he's here in April? Why not? Hopefully. I mean, as soon as I, hopefully they all, all the dominoes fall once I get one of them. What about doing a chat with Charles Pierce via uh, Skype or Zoom or something? Yeah. Shall I try and line it up? That'd be great. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Chatty Calligrapher. If you want to follow along with my journey in between podcasts, you can find me on Instagram at Pigment Calligraphy. In the coming week, you'll see some updates to do with the Lost Trades Fair, and I'll be posting lots of stories on the day. That's all for now from the Chatty Calligrapher.